And welcome to another edition of Odyssey House Journals. I'm Trip Mitchell, and that is the Dean of Broadcasters. The old Dean of Broadcasters. Randall Carlyle. How are you? I am very good. We've yeah. got a, a fun guest that we're going to introduce in just a second, but how are you surviving in the age of COVID? I'm still alive. Does that <laughs> say it all? I, I've had uh, one COVID test, and I tested negative. So. What did you score on it? Did you get 71? Did, uh, 71 right. is all you need to Have score. Have you had one yet? Or no? I did. I Before the hip the nose. Yep. Yeah. They took some brain matter in yeah, my case. Well, I agree. I mean, and which I didn't realize it lasted for 20 seconds and they twisted around and I'm sitting there. I put it this way. I was a, uh, a Joe Biden supporter before the test and for about 10 minutes afterwards, I wanted to vote for Trump. Well, that changed, and I know you're radical about this, but so we they, won't get into that. We they, they, they took enough brain matter. But you've mentioned that Odyssey House, it's a it's an interesting time because all the challenges, have they been started getting sorted out? Yeah, we've got, we've got things semi taken care of. We bring people in in groups. We have three, uh, uh, what would you call them, uh, confinement, not confinement, three quarantine observation, facilities. quarantine facilities. Uh, and we bring people in every other week to a different quarantine facility, like a group of 20, and they get a COVID test before they come in. They're observed for two weeks. They go through orientation therapy, the same as they would in any of our other programs. Then a day before they're supposed to matriculate into our other programs, they get another COVID test. And so if they pass both of those, then the whole group goes into our various houses. Uh, so it limits the number of people we can take in. And, and the problem with that is if one out of the 20 tests positive, then that group has to go through another, another two weeks. And so the people who were waiting to get into that facility uh, have to wait another two weeks. So it's, uh, but, but it's working and, we've, and we're, we're COVID free, knock, knock on wood. Uh, so one of the interesting things, I have a coffee group that we do up by the U of U on Sunday mornings and we sit outside social distance and the coffee shop isn't even open. And it's funny because we're sitting out there and people drive up and, you know, they think that we're uh, actually getting served. But one of the people there and a smart guy said that AA would have been better served by staying open and still having the meetings because during that period, people might have lost out and gone back out. I disagree. I think you have to be socially responsible and, you know, giving someone a, a life altering illness or something that could kill them is much worse. But it's an interesting thought. Well, and I, I, I'm to be quite honest, I, I hate Zoom meetings. I, I, I mean, it's better than not having a meeting at all. But to me, you don't have any of the camaraderie that you that you have in a normal AA meeting. Uh, I mean, even though people may not be your friends, it, to me, it just me, it means a lot more for me to be able to watch you share in person and and get the feel of the room as opposed to looking at a little box on a computer screen yeah so you have to weigh sobriety versus an illness and there's no right answer no there isn't uh and i'll be glad if things ever return to normal and we should point out you're we're not wearing masks we we both checked our temperatures before we came in don't have any symptoms so we're semi-socially distancing so well with that note let's bring on our guest yes i've known him for a number of years come on in travis whitaker Yay! Yeah. <laughs> travis by the way is a great dresser you know <laughs> randall you came in looking very spiffy but both travis and i have our greg norman shirts which now if only you could play golf like greg norman did then you'd be great that is a good point yes. i 
you know, I can always get around. I'm about, I shoot about 72, but they insist I play the other six holes. So <laughs> that's somewhat of a challenge. But Travis, I learned about you through actually watching TV. And I've seen, and so Travis, you've been in recovery for a long time and happened to work for Recovery Center. And I saw your ads on TV and go, those are gorgeous ads. So tell me about where you work and then we'll hear your story. Yeah, I work at Maple Mountain Recovery. Uh, I've actually been sober 11 years, and uh, we wanted to, as we know, addiction doesn't discriminate. So whether you're suffering from uh, you know, an addiction, trauma, PTSD, whatever's going on, it doesn't matter your skin color or the amount of money you make. So we wanted to do an ad that showed first responders, uh, an ad that showed you know, the, the housewife next door that could be an addict. Uh, the athlete that probably got hurt during, you know, during something and got their pain back. Pills and pain pills and switched so, to heroin. Yeah. yeah. And so we wanted to bring that to light and show that it doesn't just affect people that are just homeless out on the street, that it affects everybody, and everybody in our community. Did you conceive the commercial? Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. It was beautiful. I saw it the first time, too. I thought, that's brilliant. Yeah. Really? I thought that was a national recovery house out of Malibu yeah. <laughs> because the people looked like they came from casting. You know, to go out and find people, everyday people who suffer from addiction. That is just a gorgeous spot. Let's get the real truth here. Were they actors or were they really people in recovery? They're actors. Okay. But I'm, I'm in recovery, so yeah, I was, right. I was I, in the end. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> You've heard the real truth here in this podcast. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's funny. And Randall and I have never, we both go out for parts as actors. And Randall, anytime there's a newsman part. Right. And I've gone out and I as a sportscaster, which I used to do for a living, and never gotten a part, so being a bad actor. I haven't either. Yeah. You've never gotten one? I got a part years ago in a LDS movie called uh, RM, Return Missionary, and I was on set. Uh, Were you the only one with a bottle? With, <laughs> I should have been. It was, and I, it was me reading breaking news about a riot breaking out at a bar in Provo with a bunch of returned missionaries who just went wild. Yeah. And that was, <laughs> so that, this was a true story. Yeah. It's a true story. No, the the bar is not a true story, but me reading it as if it were a true story is true. There yeah. is a bar in Provo. Well, I know. I and I've been there. Uh, we played a hockey game down there, and... And most of the team went to go to the bar just so we can say we've been to a bar in Provo. But those are those days are gone. Rear view <laughs> those days yeah. are gone. <laughs> so you, prior to working for Maple Mountain, had kind of a colorful history. And yeah. uh, colorful is an understatement. Yeah, I followed. I followed you. He, and and we're not sharing anything secret. You post a lot of your oh, stuff yeah. on Facebook, and you're totally open about Absolutely. what happened. Yes, yeah. describe your colorful history. Where do we begin, <laughs> right? Um, so, I mean, I was, I was stuck in addiction for 12 years. And when it first started, you know, it started out with, I hurt my back, I was a basketball player. Um, going out for a dunk in a church, guy took my legs out, landed on my tailbone and broke my L4, L5. Can I give you some advice? Mm -hmm. Those of us who could never dunk, <laughs> don't have those problems, yeah. but go ahead. Yeah. Go. We always get hurt in church ball too, yeah. right? Yeah. And we were just playing yeah. for fun. But uh, dealt with it for a few years. I was young, 20, 21 years old, and then uh, got married at 24, and then I had insurance. So, wow. yeah. And I said, I got to have this looked at because it's painful, and now I have insurance. I got to see what's going on. And uh, I went to the doctor, had x-rays done and whatnot, and that's where lower tab Percocet came into play. 
for the first couple of years, I managed. I read directions, I followed directions, and I did what I was supposed to as I was taking Take them. one every so many <laughs> hours. Yeah. 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 And then I think in like 90, I want to say 95, 96, the pain was increasing. Um, and of course, opiates make you gain weight, so my weight was increasing, causing more pain on my lower back. And my doctor had said that there's this amazing pill that just come out, it's long acting, it's for cancer patients, and I think you're a right candidate for it. Oxy! Yeah. <laughs> so as soon as Oxy, I was, I was introduced to that, um, to the 40 milligrams. Um, 40 yeah. milligrams? Yeah, because I was to the point, over two years, I was taking eight Percocet a day. So it's just, you know, how you're, you, you keep increasing sure. because it doesn't, it doesn't work as it did when it first started. So he introduced me to that and... Uh, How many 40 milligram yeah. pills would you take a day? Uh, two. So just to give you a case in point, um, I have had my knee and hip replaced <clears throat> since we've been doing this show. And they'll give me five milli milligram oxys. And on two of those pills, I couldn't even do a show. Literally, we had to stop yeah. and start again. Yeah. And it was very wow. funny at the time, but a little disconcerting. You were doing 80 milligrams a day. Oh, that's what I started at. <laughs> the, the, the end of my addiction was up to 600 oh. with fentanyl and alcohol and Xanax involved in that mix. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing you are still alive. Yeah. Wow. Absolutely. And that, wow. Um, and what's very interesting on this show, and, and one of the reasons that I am so excited about this show is we met so many people within who started out in the LDS church mm -hmm. because the perception is, is that people in the church don't become addicted because they don't drink and nothing could be farther from the truth and maybe when you don't have experience with any alcohol the drugs hit you even harder well I think that also that we probably learned during the addiction where it's it's talked about more not as much as we would like to in the community but it's talked about a little bit more um, in what I've seen in the church or religion or whatnot if it's prescribed by a doctor so, meaning Xanax can be the same as alcohol, it gives you the same effect, and then sure. if you're given, uh, you know, antidepressants or you're given pain pills, then it's, it's we're okay with it because I'm under the care of a doctor. But it, it doesn't mean that it's controllable because at some point I had 12 different doctors. And, then, <laughs> and they're all writing yeah. a script for it. Yeah, you. and then I'm buying them from drug dealers. I mean, that's kind of how it, it leads to. It doesn't, it's like I tell people, it doesn't lead to a better life. Uh, eventually, you hit that crossroad where you have three choices, and, and I'll talk about this a little bit more because this is something that I remember when the car accident happened is the three choices. You're either going to go to prison because you're going to kill somebody with the way that I'm out in the community driving, right, while using. Um, I'm going to die of an overdose, or I am going to go to prison for life or find recovery. Those are the things that um, I try to explain to people. It doesn't get better. No, it, it gets worse and it starts taking and consuming everything around you, family, jobs, legal issues. Um, you don't find it. I heard somebody say in an AA meeting once that, that you, you never find a happy person in their 50s, 60s, 70s who is, is happy and proud of the fact that they were a, a drug addict or an alcoholic all their lives and say, yeah, my life is great. I like doing drugs. I like drinking like I do. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't happen. No, no. And you hear a lot of people talking about um, got to hit your, your bottom. I, I, believe, I believe we have to raise that bottom. You know what I mean? By communicating and educating families. I think that helps 
rather than just let people keep hitting bottom and, and wrecking lives. And I do believe, and I'm one that suffered from it, I believe that there is that generational trauma that in our addiction we can pass down to our kids. So a, a lot of people feel that, and that I, I think I'm one of them, that you can never, that each individual has to make that decision for mm -hmm. themselves. Right. So, and, and it's said in, in recovery meetings that, you know, you don't have to get off on the bottom, but you have to find out where your bottom is. Yeah. So you feel that through intervention, through conversation, education, that you can help people make that decision well before some of us do. Uh, I do, yes. Yeah. So I'm an interventionist as well, but I look back and I'm grateful enough that my wife and I are coming up on 26 years of marriage, so. She put up with all that crap? Right? Jeez. So it started a couple years after being married, and then 12 years of addiction. It was her It was her fault. She had the insurance. <laughs> I just, I yeah, don't want right. to say. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, putting it, if she was more educated and had better tools, her boundaries would have been better, which could have helped me earlier, is what I mean by that. Now, I had my own path, of course, that I had to forge to find my recovery, but I, I believe that uh, a lot of families get in that place where, they don't know what to do. They don't know how to help. They, they just, they, you know what I mean? And they're lost. So I think by educating and educating the kids that my addiction wasn't my kid's fault. Like I had to, I did a lot of that in recovery because they all thought that daddy uses because he's, he's mad at them. Right. That's what they had We thought. were bad. Yes. Therefore he reacted to us being bad and is using. Right. Which is understandable on a kid's, from a kid's point of view. Yeah. Or a wife's point of view. Yeah. Well, she had no idea. She's like, you can get become addicted from a doctor. Did she? So she didn't know that you were high most of the time? Well, eventually, yeah. When the car wrecks and getting arrested <laughs> and the overdoses and the seizures. I mean, at that point, then uh, she started understanding. But here's an amazing woman that is taking care of three small kids, taking care of her job, paying bills while I'm out just running amok. And... She had never dealt with that. You know, grew up in the LDS church, didn't understand addiction. They thought that if you just wanted to quit, just quit. It doesn't work like that. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Right? Yeah. So, so you were, so describe your progression from when you first started to the work, to how bad it was. You mentioned all these drugs and, and booze you were yeah. ingesting. It, uh, it got bad. I remember, um, being so angry, I mean, you know, when, when you don't have what you need, you get sick, you get dope sick, and you're angry, and you're just on the edge all the time. And I remember running into a tree at 70 miles an hour because I was in so much pain. Like, I was... So you intentionally were... Intentionally. You were trying to kill yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was so hurt that I was doing this to my family and my kids, and I didn't know a way out. I didn't know... And because I wasn't out actively using with other people. This was just me going to doctors, buying pills, you know, continuing this lifestyle. And I didn't know how to quit. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know who to reach out to. So you're driving along mm -hmm. and you decide that the most sensible course of action is to keep your foot on the accelerator and drive into a tree. Yeah. How do you process that? Because he was high. You because know, your brain's hijacked and it's not working right. It, uh, how do you process that? I'm going to do a TV thing. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to ask that question and then take a short break. 
Just that's, that's a TV thing, and yeah. you'll get the answer to that question after this spring. <laughs> right? Perfect. And welcome back to Odyssey House Journal's Randall Carlisle, Trip Mitchell, visiting with Travis Whitaker. And before we went to break, I would ask you how you process driving into a tree at 70 miles an hour. Well, I do know that uh, I worked the grave shift. I was on my way to work, and uh, I was actually detoxing. I was withdrawing. So it was one of those things where I was just, I was agitated, I was angry, and I was just, you know what I mean, just so like, because it was, it was a lot that I was withdrawing from. I, I mean, my tolerance had gotten up pretty high. I would say so. Yeah, so when you're, when you're withdrawing, I mean, it's like, it's, it's hard to explain to people that have never done it. I mean, it you, you literally want to die. Like, you can feel every hair on your body. I mean, it, it's that, you're, you're that aware of yourself. And uh, I was angry with myself as well, like what I've been doing for my life. And I just came around a corner and hit the tree and uh, uh, messed up my knee and went to the emergency room. Well, was, what kind of car were you in? It was, a, it was uh, that car that uh, you'll see a little bit later. So it's had multiple wrecks. And what, it's a Grand it, Prix, 2005 Pontiac Grand Prix. And for those of you at GM, yeah. that is an amazing car to be yeah, able to. You're still alive. Yeah. 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 Um, so it hit the front end. The dash came in, hit my knee, and uh, put me in a brace. Need more pain pills. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. So problem solved. Yeah. So I stopped going to my primary doctor, and I was going to a different doctor about my knee. And uh, it allowed me to to be at home and to still just kind of continue this, this lifestyle. Sure. Um, I remember the day that I was going for a follow-up to get the brace off, I knew my knee was fine. But what I did was I got a rubber mallet from the garage. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Took a rubber mallet to my knee so it was swollen. So when I went in, I had an excuse to continue to get pain pills. Wow. And yeah. that, ladies and that gentlemen, sounds... shows you how desperate drug addicts are when they don't have what they want. Yeah. You know, that. That's the epitome of it all, if you think about it. Yeah. Because people watching who have never ex experienced addiction would say that, it would, first of all, driving into a tree at 70 or a pole and, and then banging your banged up knee with a rubber mallet is the most ridiculous thing they've ever heard. Yeah. But did it make sense to you at the time? Absolutely, because my brain is so, is so caught on I need my next fix what happens now, I gotta continue this. So I have to go in there showing that my knee's still swollen and it still hurts for me to continue to get what I have because as I've learned with, with doctors, they're trained to treat the symptom. Right. So if I have a symptom where there's pain, they're going to treat me and they're gonna to continue to give me pain pills. Let's take it through to the final car wreck, mm -hmm. which we have a picture of that Lee's gonna put on. Yeah. So. Take us through to that. So April 20th, 2009. Um, Not that you remember. Yeah, yeah. There's very few things I remember about that time. Um, two days before that, I remember that uh, my pharmacist messed up and gave me two bottles of 120 of Xanax. So I got a new bottle filled and a refill. And they messed up, so I walked out with 240 Xanax. Um, Did you feel like you just hit the lottery? <laughs> I felt like I had just won everything. The Powerball, right? Yeah. Um, the next three or four days, I was told what took place. Um, I ran through the garage with the car and ran over my kids' bikes and just a lot of 
things building up to what has taken place. So I remember my wife and I had gotten an argument and uh, uh, they tried to stop me from getting behind the wheel of the car, but they were unsuccessful. And I took off to Wendover out that direction. Which is where a lot of LDS people go when they've had too many Xanax. Right? (laughs) If for some reason, I had multiple car wrecks out that way. It was just my, I'm packing up clothes, I'm leaving. And that's where I was going. I don't know why. Um, I remember rolling the window down because I was getting a little sleepy. And uh, the music was up loud. And I guess I lost control and rolled it multiple times doing 120. What I do remember about that moment is I was in the Tooele Hospital, and uh, I was looking down at myself. They were, they were bringing me back to life. I was looking down at myself, and I had my guardian angel right here, and uh, he smacks me in the back of the head. And I look over, and I'm just like, he's like, do you get it? Do you get it? I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, I'm done. You're, you're exhausting. I'm done. <laughs> and this is where he said you got three choices, and I need you to pick one because I, I can't do this anymore. One, find recovery. Two, I'm going to let you die on the table. Or you're going to end up killing somebody and go to prison the rest of your life. And I chose recovery. Good for you. Yeah. And, and you will have by now seen the pictures of what he survived. Uh, you're a lucky man. Yes, absolutely. So how did you go about recovery? So at the time... you were hardcore. I was hardcore. 2009. And the, and the craziest thing is... is when I got out of the hospital and got home, my wife was done. Kicked me out. Cops were at the house. Don't blame her. Absolutely. I mean, and I was right there like, I, I, you're right. I'm destroying everything. One stayed at my friend's house. And the craziest thing is I went two weeks with no withdrawals. I had so much Xanax, alco- or not alcohol, I had Xanax, Oxycontin, and fentanyl in my system. And I didn't go through one withdrawal. So it stayed in your system for two weeks before you got dope sick. I didn't get dope sick. That's the strangest thing I cannot explain. Uh, that experience, it's, it's changed my life. And I reached out to my bishop and my state president because at the time, residential treatment didn't take insurance in 2009. And, and I didn't know what to do. Um, and they got me into treatment and I spent 95 days and it changed my life and here wow. I am. And 95 you, days. Yeah. <clears throat> now you're working in treatment. Yeah. So describe what you guys do at Maple Mountain. So at Maple Mountain Recovery, we... Um, we're trauma focused. We have our mental health license as well as our substance abuse license. And uh, you know, whether you're addiction, trauma, PTSD, all master level therapists, all EMDR, um, neurofeedback, help your help your brain heal. Find out what part of your brain's not functioning at a high level. Um, equine therapy, biosound. And the amazing thing is it's one owner. So and he's involved and gives us the ability to So his passion is recovery. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's and it's small. Yeah. I mean, you know, we talk about Odyssey, and we we take care of a thousand people a day, and you're sixteen beds. Sixteen. Yeah. Wow. Um, and it's funny when you talked about evaluating the mind. I don't think I want to go visit because if you evaluated <laughs> my mind, you might find out something pretty yeah. weird. But one of the things about the recovery-based system, and and I have to compliment Randall who has had an amazing TV career, yes. but says that he has not worked a day since he left TV news to go to Odyssey House. And you seem like one of the happier people I've met. Yeah. Working recovery is a pretty cool way of, of going, doing something that matters. You know, and, and it's like I tell people, I'll get people in early recovery want to work, and I'm like, you need to get your recovery in check first. Right. Because it is, it's draining. 
but it's very rewarding at the same time. But it is seven days a week, as we know. Uh, addiction doesn't take a time off, uh, you know, a day off. But uh, I, I, I'm, I'm in a place where I get to help, help people get what I have. And that's to get your lives on track, to get your kids on track, um, and heal your relationships, and just have a, an amazing rest of your life. As we know, it goes by so fast. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, it, it really does. Why not enjoy it and uh, uh, make those amends? I think the biggest thing that, you know, it gets in the way from people's recovery is just not admitting you have a problem and not reaching out and asking for help. I agree. Yeah. I mean, I... I... I, I mean, I, I went through detox and, and uni twice, and I remember it took me forever to go to an AA. I mean, I went to some AA meetings, but it took me forever to say, I'm Randall, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and you hear a lot of people in AA meetings saying, I'm so-and-so, and I, I have a problem with something or something. But just to define yourself, you know, it, yeah. that's hard to accept. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I live recovery, I love recovery, and I'm one that, uh, you know, I know I've made a lot of mistakes along the way in recovery as well, but one of those things is, it's like, I just make sure I don't do it again. Yeah. You know, I learn yeah. from it, I apologize a lot quicker than I ever did in the past. Well, uh, it, yeah. It's <laughs> one of the AA steps, when you're wrong, promptly admit it. I, I follow that all the yeah. time. Hey, I screwed up. You know, it's funny, in life, we all try to avoid admitting mistakes. Yeah. When you come around the other side and are willing to admit it, it saves a lot of time. Because if you've got two hours a day blaming all the mistakes on other people, that takes time out of your day. Yeah. So Maple Mountain, you have 16 beds. Yes. So when someone comes in, you're really focusing on them, but... The question I have is how predetermined are we to be an alcoholic or drug addict? Some people think it's in the womb when we come out, we have those genes. Some people think it's experiences along the way. What are your thoughts after working in recovery? Uh, well, I'm just gonna share my personal experience. I believe it's in the gene. You know, my dad died of a drug overdose years ago. Um, my father's side were all uh, opioid addicts and I've had probably five or six deaths in the family from death by suicide and overdoses in the last five or six years. So it's very, um, I think my children, that's why I'm all about getting therapy and taking care of that, you know, that pass down trauma and bringing awareness in the education. That's why I'm big on that. So um, I, I, I don't, I just think it, it is passed down. I don't even know my dad and here I am an opioid addict. I think there's a genetic predisposition because alcoholism runs through the paternal side of my family for mm. generations. It doesn't mean that you're like with your kids. It doesn't mean they're destined to become no. an opioid addict. Right. Uh, but but it certainly would be nice to be made aware of it and say yeah. Because right. I, I remember going to visit my mom in a rehab when we were in high school, and it was such a foreign thing. To why does mom have to go to the hospital? Right. Well, yeah. What's wrong with her? She's report? sick. <laughs> and it was so foreign, but yet, you know, that was in her side of the family, and obviously I've continued. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it's kind of scary. So at Maple Mountain, to get back to your current occupant, when people come in, you really get a chance to talk to them mm -hmm. about their life experiences and take a look at that. Absolutely. I mean, that happens from the admission standpoint. When they call in, seeing if we're the right facility, and... Uh, we walk them through the steps, you know, you can go to the website and see some of the modalities that we do. And for the moment you walk in the door, it's almost like your family because 95% of us is in some type of recovery. Whether it's yourself or you have your own mental health issues or family, we all get it. 
So when you come in, you want to sit down, the therapist does a BPS, gets a little history of your background, and then the program is designed around what that client's needs are. So, and it's, it's individualized, yeah. Well, that's amazing. What, um, so we'll put uh, the number for Maple Mountain up, mm -hmm. and do you want your personal cell number as well? No, I can put the admissions. It's 801-499-9316. Okay, fantastic. Repeat that for slow people watching. Yeah. <laughs> okay, one more time, yes. 801-499-9316. And that's for Maple Mountain. Yeah, and uh, also we want to give the phone number out, and we do this on each and every show for Odyssey House, and we don't, we know enough, both Randall and I, with a little bit of recovery, Lee with a lot, that there is no one answer. Right. But to share your problem with someone is the most important thing, because when you're in addicted, you feel like the life, you know, people will say the right thing, but you feel like you're all alone. Absolutely. And you can share that and admit that there's a challenge. And so the people at Odyssey House would be glad to get some information to you. There is a program out there for you. I guarantee that. And, and, and each program works. I mean, each person probably works better in a specific program. So you need to shop around and look and see what they offer. You know, and, uh, and yeah. the Odyssey number is 801-322-3222. So call that number, call Maple Mountain, call someone if you got a problem in your family. Yeah, do your, you know, do your homework, find out what's the right yeah, fit for you. Sure. Absolutely. And Travis, you know, looking at you, you would never think he's running to he's running to <laughs> things at 70 miles an hour and rolling his car at 120. Yeah. You and should be a race car driver or something. It, you know, to to sit here with you gentlemen and talk about recovery and and uh, you know, it's it's a beautiful thing. It, it really yeah. is, and you just inherently just made the bis biggest mistake. You called us gentlemen. That's <laughs> true. That's true. <laughs> Ain't none of us at this table. <laughs> want to thank everyone involved. Bill Francis, who puts us on Comcast 17. Lee, our editor, who's got uh, quite a few years sober. For Randall, I'm Tripp. Travis, thanks so much for coming in. Thank and you. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.